from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Dis historian, Michael Bowling. And I am joined by my good friend, co-host, and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you on this beautiful July day? I'm doing just great. How are you, Michael? Doing well. Doing well. We are, we are you know, way in the heat of the summer yeah. out here in our kingdom. <laughs> oh, I mean, we're not doing much better, uh, but, you know... The only thing we have to look forward to is that August is going to be even worse. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah us too. <laughs> so, but um, but I love the summer. So I love uh, I, I like heat. So I I don't mind it, and we don't have your humidity. Yeah, no. It, it, our, every single day, our humidity's been a hundred percent. It's been awful. Uh, uh, I am definitely a winter person, but I don't know. There's also something about. The nostalgia of summertime and being a kid and, you know, it's even like being around Disney parks when you see how, just how many more kids are all around because they are off for the school year and and it just takes you back to being younger again. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I know I'm only 30, but it's, you know, I'm old. <laughs> Oh please! <laughs> yeah. Hold it I know we were we were chatting with our granddaughter uh, the other day, and you know we always chat, have questions for her, and yeah. we um, I said, hey, what questions do you have for me and Grandma? And the first thing out of her mouth is, when are we going to Disneyland? <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've I've trained you right. Yeah, and that's so an excellent asked, question. It is, it is, and I'm glad she asked it. Yeah. And and um. I asked her, okay, which time of year do you prefer? Do you prefer Halloween time or Christmas time at Disneyland? And she gave it some thought, and she said Halloween time. So, and so we're we're trying to figure out when we can go. And Disneyland this year is just like uh, the Magic Kingdom. Halloween begins in August yeah. this year yeah. out here. That's new for us. Well. Uh, Get so. used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it is very bizarre. So, but I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see uh, now that like Big Thunder Trails open back up at Disneyland if they mm-hmm. uh, if they you know give that atmosphere back for Disneyland. Obviously, they don't. They lose out on Big Thunder Ranch and the amazing decorations that were yeah. back there. But um, I I love Disneyland at Halloween. I think mm-hmm. if you know, if I had my choice of being in our Magic Kingdom or Disneyland Park for Halloween, I would choose Disneyland over and over <laughs> again. I think it's just so amazing. Yeah, they're both cool. Um, yeah. You know, because uh, you know the way they do Rivers of America, and they have the fog exactly. And uh, but in front of your haunted mansion, how they have the ghost. That, that you know, yeah, no. I mean, it's cool. They're both c- cool places. I yeah. Will- yeah, Any time during the holidays at Disneyland or Magic Kingdom or anywhere, that's the time to be there. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, 
we're talking about those. We're, we're sort of going to start today talking about uh, sort of the, the one that got it all started, according to Walt. Um, in this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are continuing our retrospective of Walt Disney's animation history. Now, you might remember in episode 29, um, we with Disney historian and author David Bossert, we learned um, how Walt learned he did not own the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Rather, Oswald and all his friends were copyrighted by Universal Studios, and the studio had hired Charles Mintz to oversee and distribute the series. Walt discovered that Charles Mintz was starting his own animation studio and had hired most of Walt's animators behind his back and intended to take over production of the Oswald series. So Walt sent a telegram to Roy with the message, leaving tonight, stopping over KC, Kansas City, arrive home Sunday morning, 7.30, don't worry, everything okay, we'll give details when arrive. Walt. He and Lillian boarded a train in New York for a three-day ride back to Los Angeles on March 13, 1928, without his studio's animated star and only animator Ub Iwerks and two apprentice animators still in his employ. Now, we all know the story about how Walt created Mortimer Mouse on that train ride, but Lillian did not like the name Mortimer and suggested Mickey. But, is that what really happened? That is the question we are going to explore on this episode of Connecting with Walt. Now, the story of Mickey's birth is a tangled knot of fact and fiction. So, to give you an example, in his autobiography, the one-time child actor Mickey Rooney claimed he met Walt Disney during the filming of the popular Mickey Maguire comedies on the Warner Brothers lot. You're, you're going to have to Google that, kids. Um, <laughs> when he was five years old, um, Mr. Rooney stated that Walt had a picture of a mouse he had drawn and showed it to him. Um, when Mr. Rooney said, my gosh, that's a good looking mouse, Mr. Disney, Walt said, it sure is, Mickey. And he stopped and looked into space for a minute. Mickey, Mickey, he said, tell me something. How would you like me to name this mouse after you? And I said, I sure would like that. But right now, I got to get a tuna sandwich. Oh, Craig, isn't that an adorable story? Oh, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> it's only the story that a confused person could ever make up. <laughs> But it could not have possibly happened. And why, you might ask? Well, until 1932, Mickey Rooney acted under his birth name, Joel Yule Jr. And Mickey Rooney was born in 1920. If he was five years old when he met Walt Disney, that would place the meeting in 1925 or 1926. The Mickey McGuire films, which were not Warner Brothers productions, began in 1927. Mickey Mouse made his film debut in 1928. And let's not even get into why Walt Disney would be wandering around the Warner Brothers studio, sketching this unnamed mouse, whilst Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was still in production by his studio. You know, wouldn't you just be walking around showing off your next latest and greatest creation to a competitor? Like, what? 
makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a, it's a lovely little story. But Anyway, in his book, Broken Toy, A Man's Dream, A Company's Mystery, Craig L. Andrews claims Walt may have been inspired to name Mickey based on a popular wooden toy made by the Performo Toy Company Incorporated in 1926, who also manufactured Felix the Cat toys. And this wooden toy mouse may have a passing resemblance to Walt Disney's future star with an ebony body arms, legs, and feet, and a black and white face, a red ball on the tip of its tail, and black knobs for hands. And if you Google the Perform-O toy company, you'll you'll see this mouse. He's, he's He's on the internet there. Now, interestingly, this toy had a crimson badge on its chest inscribed with M I C K Y. So did Walt and Lillian see this wooden mouse toy in New York or during their travels from New York to Los Angeles? Well, we'll never know. One of the first reports on the creation of Mickey Mouse was by journalist Harry Carr for the Los Angeles Times. In a March 1931 article for the American Magazine, he interviewed Walt about his dispute with Charles Mintz and how Mickey Mouse came to be. Carr wrote... I can't say how this idea came, said Disney. He, we wanted another animal. We had had a cat, and a mouse naturally came to mind. We felt that the public, especially children, like animals that are cute and little. I think that we were rather indebted to Charlie Chaplin for the idea. We wanted something appealing, and we thought of a tiny bit of a mouse that would have something of a wistfulness of Chaplin, a little fellow trying to do the best he could. Now, in two other articles, one by Dan Thomas for a nationally syndicated Sunday supplement every week, published in March 1931, and in an article for the British Windsor Monthly, supposedly written by Walt Disney himself, Walt said pretty much the same thing. Why did I choose a mouse for my principal character? Principally because I needed a small animal. I couldn't use a rabbit because there was already a rabbit on the screen. So I decided upon a mouse, as I have always thought they were interesting little creatures. At first, I decided to call him Mortimer Mouse, but changed his name to Mickey as the name has a more friendly sound. And Mickey really is a friendly sort of character. So all of these statements are in our first chapter of The Legend of How the Mouse Was Born. After losing Oswald, Walt was convinced he had to create a new character with similarities to Oswald or Felix the Cat, with the wistfulness of Charlie Chaplin, a small, cute, friendly fellow trying to do the best he could, who initially was to be named Mortimer. So nothing we've learned since contradicts the facts we learned from these early stories. Another story was published in December 1931. The true story of Mickey Mouse by Sarah Hamilton appeared in the fan magazine Movie Mirror. In this story, Hamilton claimed that in the back of Walt Disney's mind, while working on Alice, and those are the Alice comedies, Mm -hmm. lurked the tiny germ of an idea that eventually led to Mickey. 
Now, Miss Hamilton added three new elements to Mickey's story in her article. The idea for the mouse came to Walt en route back to Los Angeles from New York as the wheels of the train turned to the tune of Chug Chug Mouse and the whistle screeched a ma wow 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 house <laughs> by the time he arrived home she wrote disney had dressed his dream mouse in a pair of red velvet pants with two huge pearl buttons had composed his first scenario and all was set and a similar story would appear two years later in January 1934 in another article for Windsor magazine with Walt Disney's byline However, in 1933, during the celebration of Mickey's fifth anniversary of his debut in Steamboat Willie, another element of Mickey's story was added. In the article, he's Mickey Mouse's voice and master, written by Jack Grant for the fan magazine Movie Classic. It was noted, There have been many stories of how Mickey Mouse originated. Some of these have Walt as an artist suffering various degrees of starvation in a garret, feeding a friendly mouse and having his great idea born from observation of a rodent. Intriguing though this romantic legend may be, unfortunately it is not true. Disney chose a mouse for his cartoons because he wanted a little fellow. Now, Despite Grant stating the stories of Walt, the starving artist feeding a friendly mouse were not true. This feeding a friendly mouse legend had by December 1933 become a core component of our second chapter of the story of how the mouse was born. This romanticized version of Mickey's creation appeared in multiple publication and stressed Walt's special feeling for mice. In fact, Walt himself promoted this version of Mickey's creation in a 1933 story for a Minnesota newspaper when he was quoted as saying, I first got the idea for Mickey, I suppose, when I was working in an office in Kansas City. The girls used to put their lunches in wire waste baskets, and every day the mice would scamper around in them after crumbs. I got interested and began collecting a family in an old box. They became very tame, and by the time I was ready to turn them loose, they were so friendly, they just sat there on the floor looking at me. I had to shoo them away. Now, journalist Edward C. Hill switched Walt's encounters with the friendly mice from Walt's workplace to his personal workspace when he wrote in August 1933, Mickey was born in Kansas City. He was really a live mouse playing unafraid over the drawing board of an ambitious art-crazy kid of 17 who was working in a $5 a month room over a garage in the Missouri City. That was how and where Walt Disney, Mickey's creator, got his inspiration, his model and his start. Perhaps one should say, really, that there was actually a live Mickey and a live Minnie scampering over Walt's drawing board as the young artist dreamed his dreams. For there were two mice that played about in Walt's room, and which he tamed and taught to pose for him. It's really a fascinating story. Oh, uh I mean, he really would be a visionary if he was actually taming them and teaching them how to pose. That's uh, that's quite the myth. <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, what we're going to learn is Walt perpetuated this story for a really long time. 
Um, the, the November 1933 issue of Psychology Magazine, which is the precursor of Psychology Today, also promoted the mythology of Mickey and his companion. One evening, as he, meaning Walt, was bending over his drawing board, two little mice scampered across his table. Amused at their capers, he began to make friends with them, and presently they were serving as his models. For hours they would sit on his drawing board while he worked, combing their whiskers and licking their chops in true mouse fashion, and Walt would weave them into human situations and make them tell funny human stories." So, in our second chapter of A Mouse is Born, as one writer stated, Walt is portrayed as a St. Francis of the Silver Screen, befriending innocent creatures and, in turn, using them as artistic inspiration. And is this true? We will never truly know. What do you think? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't surprise me if, if there were mouse in where Walt mice if they were Walt yeah. worked and you know Walt never let a good story get in the way of the truth sometimes and so it, it wouldn't surprise me if he if this were something he perpetuated because it was a cute little story oh yeah no it, it absolutely is a, a great story to keep pushing and you know if it, if there was too much truth in it it would probably end up being a lot more boring. So, um, you know, sometimes the the best stories are the ones that you start forgetting those actual details and you you fill in the blanks and and then it just goes haywire. So, I I don't know. Yeah. It I know. It's just I just find it fascinating how uh, as we find out how the story of Mickey progressed over the years. Now, now in April 1933, the Kennedy Galleries in New York presented an exhibition of original drawings and watercolors by Walt Disney. And to accompany the exhibit, the College Art Association, who was a co-sponsor of the exhibition, along with United Artists Corporation, published notes on the art of Mickey Mouse for 10 cents a copy. And in this essay, this is how the birth of Mickey was described. In a $5 a month room over a garage, which he proudly termed his studio, a boy named Walt Disney used to sit at night and watch the antics of a pair of little mice. After weeks of patient persuasion, he had tamed them beyond the precincts of their hole in the baseboard and nibbled bits of cheese in their paws or even ate from his hand. As he watched them, he sometimes wrote letters to his niece, um, Six, daughter of his older brother, who carried mail in Los Angeles. The letters described the activities of the mice and were sometimes illustrated with drawings of them, doing funny, fantastic human things. So this account includes the talking points previously put out by the studio, but now has the addition of Walt corresponding with his niece about the mice. Now, this new storyline most likely came from Walt himself, but it is inaccurate in its details. Walt's older brother, Herb, the father of Walt's niece, Dorothy Disney, lived in Oregon with his family until 1930, when they moved to California. Yet, in January 1934, another version of The Making of the Mouse appeared in Windsor Magazine under Walt Disney's name, although it was most likely ghostwritten. 
It started out the same as the previous article in Windsor Magazine, Mickey Mouse, How He Was Born. In this article, the events leading to the loss of Oswald the Rabbit are barely referred to. This article focuses on how Walt conceived of the mouse during the train ride from New York to California. This is what it says. But was I downhearted? Not a bit. I was happy at heart, for out of the trouble and confusion stood a mocking merry little figure. Vague and indefinite at first, but it grew and grew and grew, and finally arrived, a mouse, a romping, rollicking little mouse. The idea completely engulfed me. The wheels turned to the tune of it, chug, chug, mouse, chug, chug, mouse, the train seemed to say. The whistle screeched it, a ma-ma-wow, a mouse, it wailed. By the time the train reached the Middle West, I had dressed my dream mouse in a pair of red velvet pants with two huge pearl buttons, had composed the first scenario, and all was set. In a June 1934 Times Magazine article, Douglas W. Churchill wrote a similar story. When Oswald showed a prophet, Disney, then in New York, asked for money with which to improve the picture. The distributors said no, so he parted with them. On the train back to Hollywood, he tried to think of a new character. He recalled a mouse that he had once trained to sit on the desk while he drew, a mouse with personality. He decided to take it to the screen. With Mrs. Disney, who had been one of his artists, he drafted the first scenario of the new series. And when he reached Hollywood, he was ready for work. They called the figure Mortimer Mouse, but that didn't seem right. Finally, they thought of Mickey. His inamorata they called Minnie. In both of these articles now, we see a slight retelling of Mickey's creation, which is our chapter three of our Mouse is Born story. In the Time Magazine article, Walt's fondness for small rodents is no longer central to the story, and it isn't mentioned at all in Windsor Magazine article. What is emphasized is how Walt took charge of his destiny in the face of adversity. Now, also noteworthy in the Windsor article is a description of Mickey's clothing, red velvet pants with two huge pearl buttons. And there is support for this, um, since the first known color poster for one of Mickey's 1929 cartoons shows Mickey dressed exactly like this. The figure on this poster, with Mickey's right hand on his hip and his other hand raised in greeting, was drawn by Ub Iwerks and became the basis for the classic image of Mickey Mouse. Ub was very fond of this pose. He drew it for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in 1927 and for his own character, Flip the Frog, which he created when he left the Walt Disney Studio to start his own studio. Now, from all these stories, it is irrefutable that Walt was the one who created Mickey Mouse, and he recorded his voice for many years. However, by Walt's own admission, his strength was as a storyman rather than an artist. It was Ub Iwerks, Walt's top animator, who's key to the design of Mickey. The proof of Ub's significant contribution to the design of Mickey is noted in the opening titles for the first 15 cartoon shorts from Steamboat Willie through Wild Waves that identify them as a Walt Disney comic by Ub Iwerks, with Ub's name in bigger letters than Walt's name. 
Posters and ads for the cartoon shorts display produced by Walt Disney and drawn by Ub Iwerks. There was also a very well-known studio photograph of Ub in 1929 with rolled-up shirt sleeves sketching Mickey Mouse. And in 1930, Mickey Mouse comic strips ran in newspapers across the country, and they were identified as by iWorks. In a May 1934 Harper's Magazine article, Arthur Mann wrote iWorks, who was then and still is the best animator in the film cartoon business and was the artistic genius behind the early Disney animated cartoons, and his name appeared on the title Flashes. So clearly, Ub was vital to the creation and success of Mickey Mouse. So why is he not included in all the studio stories about how Mickey Mouse was created? Well, I mean, before you even go down that road, it's I think the bigger question is, besides us mega Disney fans, like why why isn't his name more well known just in general? I mean, it's because you know his his story starts early on with Disney, but then it it just continues on through through live action and everything he did throughout his career. I mean, it, when you think about legends in animation, Ub Iwerks is right up there. He should be at the top. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just incredible that he's just, he's kind of just in the shadows and all Mm -hmm. of this, which, which is a shame, but hopefully, uh, and you know, I I think everyone who listens to, to this show and follows along with the history of Disney, they know of iWorks, but hopefully now we can, uh, can shed a little light on him a bit more. So mm-hmm. some stories that people don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Ub had remained loyal to Walt when Charles Mintz had hired away most of Walt's key animators. You know, Ub received on-screen credit, on-screen credit for, <laughs> um, you know, for d- drawing Mickey. And he was rewarded financially for his loyalty and contributions to the studio. You know, Ub had a contract with Walton Roy in which Ub received about one fifth of the profits, and Walton Roy divided the remainder equally. So, what happened? Now, as the story goes, Ub began to draw not only the Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts, but also the Silly Symphonies. He began to feel he wasn't getting the credit he deserved as Walt's primary animator for the successful cartoons. And also, Ub was beginning to be unable to cope with what could be the demanding management style of Walt's. So finally, in January 1930, Ub and Walt had a falling out. Ub surrendered his 20% share in the partnership in exchange for a refund of $2,920 that he had been paying Walt and Roy toward his interest in the business, as well as any proprietary claim on the mouse. Ub accepted a contract with a competitor to leave the Disney studio and start the iWorks studio. And for years, Walt felt betrayed by Ub. The friendship was repaired only after Ub's studio failed in 1936, and Walt rehired him in 1940 and put him in charge of developing special visual effects, which really was um, Ub's strength. Yeah. Um, 
So Ub left the Disney studio in 1930, and this was just as the legend of Mickey Mouse's creation was slowly being crafted. So this resulted in Ub being left out of the story by Walt and the Walt Disney Studio for over three decades. A good example of this is evidenced in a studio photograph from 1947 showing Walt Disney supposedly finishing a sketch of Steamboat Willie. I think it even goes further than that in that uh, at One Man's Dream, the show that uh, at Disney's Hollywood Studios that rarely gets shown anymore in between whatever movie they're trying to promote next for Disney. Um, they they really, in Walt Disney's life story and creating Mickey Mouse, they, they pretty much skip over Ub for the most part in that, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he just can't catch a break when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, Ub's um, rightful return to the story of Mickey did not happen until after he passed away from a heart attack on July 7th, 1971, when he was 70 years old. And an obituary stated he was Walt Disney's chief cartoonist and the man who helped create Mickey Mouse. Now, in 2001, during the centenary celebration of Walt Disney's birth, Roy E. Disney saluted Ub Iwerks with a book and a documentary film co-written and produced by Ub's granddaughter, Leslie Iwerks. Um, Both were entitled The Hand Behind the Mouse, the Ub Iwerks story. Um, The film was released in 1999 and released on VHS uh, in September 2001. And it's also included on the Walt Disney Treasures series, The Adventures of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And so this documentary is available in that, you know, the tins. And it's also available online and on YouTube if you want to check it out. Yeah. Now, the 1934 Windsor Magazine article emphasized Walt's singular decisiveness and resolve, which was well-received in the Depression era. However, in a radio interview in the late 1930s, Walt gave what would be the most definitive story of Mickey's creation. I was in New York at the time. I'd been producing a series of pictures for a company there, and they were about a rabbit called Oswald, but I lost that. They took it away from me. So I was all alone and had nothing. And Mrs. Disney and I were coming back from New York on the train, and I had to have something. I said, by the time we get to Hollywood, I must have something to... I can't tell him I've lost Oswald. So I had this mouse in the back of my head because a mouse is sort of a sympathetic character in spite of the fact that everyone is frightened of a mouse, including myself. (laughs) So in the months leading up to the 25th anniversary of Mickey's debut in Steamboat Willie, these stories of Mickey's creation were combined and revised a bit for two magazine articles in a February 1953 article for McCall's, an article titled, I Live with a Genius by Lillian Disney, explained how Mickey Mouse came to be. Stories have been printed about how Walt got interested in mice on the farm in Marceline, Missouri, when he was a kid. Newspaper articles have told how Walt used to have a pet mouse named Mickey, which lived in his wastebasket during the freelance cartoon days in Kansas City. Walt loves all animals. He won't even let the gardener and me put out traps for the little ones that are garden pests. But when he created Mickey Mouse, there was no symbolism or background for the idea. He simply thought the mouse would make a cute character to animate. 
I'm getting ahead of my story, however. Roy and Walt were still working with Oswald the Rabbit when that the New York distributor notified them that from now on he was cutting the price per picture almost in half. Walt went to New York to argue that they couldn't break even that way. I went along, too, for a second honeymoon. It didn't turn out quite that way. Walt discovered that the distributor owned all the rights to Oswald and intended to go on making Oswald shorts without Walt if he refused to knuckle down to cut the price. Walt got mad and told the distributor what he thought of him. He came back to the hotel and announced that he was out of a job and glad because he would never work again for anybody else. He never has either. I know now how right his decision was, for to function, Walt has to be free. I didn't have the long-range viewpoint that day. I was scared to death. Walt didn't even tell Roy what had happened, but wired him that he was coming home with a great new idea. On the way back on the train, he wrote a scenario for a cartoon short to be called Plain Crazy and starring a mouse named Mortimer. As for me, I was plain crazy. I sat watching the green of the Middle West change to sagebrush and desert. I remember the early Hollywood days, and Walt and Roy were so broke that they would go to a restaurant and order one dinner, splitting the courses between them. I knew I wouldn't care much for that. I couldn't believe that my husband meant to produce and distribute pictures himself, like the big companies. He and Roy had only a few thousand dollars between them. Pictures needed a lot of financing, even in 1927. And what if Walt failed? He had insulted his distributor and hadn't even looked for a new connection. By the time Walt finished the scenario, I was practically in a state of shock. He read it to me, and suddenly all my personal anguish focused on one violent objection to the script. Mortimer is a horrible name for a mouse, I exclaimed. Walt argued. He can be very persuasive, but I stood firm. Finally, to placate his stubborn wife, Walt came up with the substitute Mickey Mouse. At this late date, I have no idea whether it is a better name than Mortimer. Nobody will ever know. I only feel a special affinity to Mickey because I helped name him. <laughs> That's a great story. That is I, a great story. I do story. love that one. Yeah. I like hearing it from Lillian's point of view. Because yeah. I can only imagine what was going through our head on that long ride back. Oh, I, when, exactly. When it, no, it's... I, hey, I know... <clears throat> I, I think we all know um, anyone who's married or has someone very close to them that when you're going through a rough time and it affects them too, it's yeah. It, 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 I it's good that she actually did put that out there, so you have a little bit of an <laughs> idea of what was actually going on. I do really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like it. Um, in October 1953, the Saturday Evening Post published a two-part story by Jack Alexander, The Amazing Story of Walt Disney, and he pretty much told the same story. Disney left the interview in New York in a state of shock. His little empire lay in ruins. Alice in Cartoonland had already run out its string. Oswald had been palmed legally by the hard-boiled distributor, who was soon to kill off the rabbit by trying to market an inferior in imitation of it. 3,000 miles away, Disney's staff, which now numbered 25 members, would shortly have nothing to do but sit on their hands. 
Afraid that morale would drop disastrously, Walt telegraphed Roy that everything had turned out great and added that he was bringing home a new idea for an animal cartoon series. All he had to do now was to come up with the big new idea on the train ride home. From the time of departure, Walt made child sketches of practically every animal he had ever heard of, trying them in various poses in the hope of discovering a glitter of appeal in at least one. Neither he nor Mrs. Disney had detected any glitter by the time they reached Chicago and changed trains. Walt resumed sketching as they whizzed westward out of Chicago. When he was ankle-deep in rejected drawings and getting mightily tired of it all, he began, for no explainable reason, to sketch mice. He found himself strangely amused as each new rodent figure took shape on his tablet. Suddenly, he shouted to his wife, who was dozing, "'I've got him! Mortimer Mouse!' Mrs. Disney was amused by the drawings, but she insisted, and even today cannot tell why, that Mickey Mouse was a better name. Walt, who was enjoying a happy creative delirium, (laughs) accepted the suggestion. So now, here in our fourth chapter of A Mouse is Born is pretty much the accepted story of Mickey Mouse's creation. It contains the commonly agreed story that Lillian got Walt to drop the name Mortimer, but she has always been quoted as giving Walt credit for giving Mickey his name. Walt would remain attached, though, to the name Mortimer. Minnie would later have a rich uncle named Mortimer. Mickey would have a nephew named Morty. And Mickey Mickey would have a rival for Minnie's affections named Mortimer. See, what I always wondered is, you know, we we know that Mortimer was the original name. Why wouldn't it have been Morty right from the get-go? That just, Morty Mouse actually sounds like it would fit. Mortimer is just so, it's convoluted insane. It doesn't have any zing to it. And, you know, someone of... Walt Disney's brilliance it's just I know it's true that he came up with it but it seems so opposite of a lot of the decisions he did make Um, Mm -hmm. it's just it doesn't have that that rhythm that he was so good at producing but I I guess not even not even geniuses are perfect yeah well I think he I know I read that he thought it was a a little bit more sophisticated and some and we're going to talk about uh, some of the early sketches of Mickey and there's a couple they think are based on Walt's original drawings mm-hmm. or might even be Walt's drawings and he was it was a little almost like a little Lord Fauntleroy Google yeah. it Google it gang where all, all dressed up in sort of fancy clothing and Mortimer would have fit that concept yeah. of the mouse better than Mickey a little a little more stuffy maybe a little more yeah formal kind of thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you so. have <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, so in this fourth chapter of our story Walt's fondness for small creatures and his determination in the face of adversity are included with an explanation of his dealings with Charles Mintz and it all comes together to form a relatively complete and accurate description of how it all happened what is still omitted from this version, though, of the story is Walt's former partner, Ub Iwerks, even though by this time Ub is back at the studio working on developing special visual effects. 
Now, Walt certainly did have a fondness for small creatures, and evidence for that goes back to the Alice comedies. Uh, It was Walt who conceived all the mice that appeared in those cartoon shorts, and there were a lot of them. Um, The only difference between most of those mice and Mickey is the shape of their noses, which were longer and more rat-like. Now, a couple of bear cubs in the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoon, Tall Timber, have a remarkable resemblance to Mickey. This, their ears are a little different. Mm-hmm. In February 1926, Walt and Roy sent a hand-drawn card to their father, Elias, which had three playful mice, again with a fascinating resemblance to the not-yet-born Mickey Mouse. So all of this can serve as proof that Walt definitely had an affection for small creatures. Now, what I was getting to a little earlier is that there is one artifact known to be linked directly to the birth of Mickey Mouse. That's a sheet of sketches of Mickey, which can now be viewed at the Walt Disney Family Museum in in the San Francisco's Presidio. Um, This sheet has been stored in a safe in the offices of the Disney Family Corporation, um, Retlaw Enterprises, and you all probably know Retlaw is Walter spelled backwards. Um, The sketches on the sheet must date from immediately or almost immediately after Walt and Lillian's train trip from New York to California. And of these sketches, Diane Disney Miller reported that John Hench believed the figure in the center of the page was done by Dad. Uh, Diane also believes her father most likely did Mickey number one, the one in the middle of the paper circled in blue. Now, Dave Smith, founder of the Walt Disney Archives, believes Ub Iwerks drew Mickey number one, with Walt standing over his shoulder. And Diane Disney Miller did concede it's possible that it was the hand of Les Clark, with Dad and Ub standing over his shoulder. So, from all these comments, we will never establish who actually drew Mickey number one and all the other mice on the sheet, which includes an early version of Minnie Mouse. Um, Based on a close examination of the style, many experts agree with Dave Smith that Ub Iwerks drew Mickey number one. Well, and just so everyone knows, we will have a picture of this in our show notes page. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested, if you haven't seen this before, um, you'll be able to go there, disunplug.com, and view the image and help decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it is so fascinating to actually see this in real life yeah when you go to the walt disney family museum i will get there one day so i can (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have to let me know we have to go together (laughs) so um if these sketches were indeed completed in the spring of 1928 ub was walt's chief animator at the time Uh, walt by this time was the studio's story man idea man salesman and manager So the sheet is blocked off in six panels and drawn on animation paper, which is how Ub crafted his story sketches for playing crazy. And the style of these sketches match Ub's style and draftsmanship. Um, Mickey number one is wearing short pants and is shoeless as he appeared in playing crazy. Now, out of the multiple sketches on the sheet, there are a couple that some believe could have been drawn by Walton. Craig, these are the ones I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, The mouse in the upper left corner is in a very refined schoolboy outfit with a bow tie, long sleeve shirt, long trousers with two pearl buttons, and shoes. 
And the sketch directly below is similar. Um, these sketches are closest to Walt's original vision of the mouse he had named Mortimer. In the 1930s, this sketch was published several times as Walt Disney's original rendering of Mickey. Mm-hmm. Now, others believe this Mortimer was most likely drawn by Ub Iwerks based on an image drawn by Walt. Um, Diane Disney Miller stated, Knowing my dad, I could not imagine it during the train ride from New York to Los Angeles with a stopover in Kansas City. He was not constantly thinking of a new character, and he always thought with paper and pen or pencil in hand. Now, Diane felt it was so logical for her father to have chosen a mouse as he's been drawing them for years in the Alice series and Oswald's. I have to give my parents' story credibility. It just makes sense. And of course, that's the one we know now, the train ride where Walt is drawing um, Mickey, what would become Mickey on the train ride back. Um, And, you know, it absolutely does make sense. Although it is clear that Ub Iwerks took Walt Disney's idea for the mouse and perfected it, brought it to the screen with the result that the mouse became an instantaneous star, it is absolutely clear that it was Walt Disney and Walt Disney alone who had the germ of an idea for the mouse. And it was under Walt's vision and direction that this led to Mickey Mouse that this idea led to Mickey Mouse. So this is just as we saw in the story published in Windsor Magazine. We could not imagine the head of the studio returning to Los Angeles and New York to face his brother Roy and loyal animator Ub Iwerks without any idea as to what they would do next. Mickey must have sprung from the creative mind of Walt Disney during that long and restless train ride home, spurned on by his intuition that people prefer animals that are cute and little, combined with Walt's special affection for mice. Um, Ub Iwerks' son once asked their father if he resented not getting enough credit for designing Mickey, and Ub told his sons, it was what Walt did with Mickey that was important, not who created him. That's a, that's a bold statement, but you know that, that shows a lot about Ub Iwerks' character. Uh, just by putting that out there, um, someone who truly wasn't selfish. Mm-hmm. And I, I always heard that Ub was a very quiet and humble, yeah, and unassuming man. Yeah, no, that's a, that, I think that's the perfect word to describe it: humble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, Frank Thomas, one of Walt's nine old men, was quoted as saying pretty much the same thing. He said, "Ub Iwerks was responsible for the drawing of Mickey." But it was Walt Disney who supplied the soul. The way Mickey reacted to his predicaments, how he tried to extricate himself from a situation he could not control, never giving up and eventually finding a solution. That was all Walt. So there are four phases to the career of Mickey Mouse. Phase one is from Mickey's screen appearance in 1928 Steamboat Willie until his 1940 appearance in Fantasia. And during these 12 years, Mickey Mouse became one of the most popular stars in the United States. Phase two begins on the eve of World War II and lasts for two decades. During this phase, Mickey's screen stardom begins to fade. He experiences a revival with the debut of the Mickey Mouse Club television show and the opening of Disneyland in 1955. 
Phase three covers the turbulent 1960s and into the presidency of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And Mickey was embraced by the pop art culture and became a time-tested classic. Phase four of Mickey's career is from the mid-1980s through present day. Through the fractious political and social climate, Mickey Mouse has now become a global icon driven by nostalgia and brilliant marketing. So we're going to begin to look at these phases of Mickey's career in our October season of Connecting with Walt. Yeah, it's very exciting. I cannot wait for it. So, So, Uh, so, Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was, I was, I was just going to ask you what you thought of the sort of the um, progression of Mickey's story, creation story. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that the progression finally ended up. Uh, maybe it is just that we're so used to the now accepted story of, uh, you know, the last one that we we talked about that that. Um, Diane has sided with uh, that was written many times with the train ride. Uh, all of the stuff in the beginning with the heavy emphasis on uh, Walt taming mice and that somehow leading to the creation. I it just all seems so such like a big fantasy to me. Um, and you know what? It, it could in fact be extremely true. Um, but something about it just seems too hard to believe. But I, I think that's why it was promoted because when you when you have situations like that where you just you can't quite believe it, but it, it's happened. Like you, you kind of have to sit there and wonder about it, and and you're really gonna to concentrate on that more. So, um, you know, I I more or less am in the in the realm that yeah this was he needed to come up with another character he probably did have ideas way before that that if you know just a scenario in case anything ever would happen you know you don't you don't want to be left without any ideas for where the future may go um and and so i, I think that was probably a little bit more accurate to to how it all happened but it, it is it is fascinating to see once you start uh once you start getting journalism involved too, and it, you know, it, it's just like a, a weird game of telephone where one person's telling the story and then the next person is, and just one or two little details keeps changing every mm-hmm. single time, and it's always fun to see what the final story ends up being. You know what the what I thought of with with the story of the mice in his in his drawing desk was. Um, Remember the early that first Alice comedy where the Alice visits the studio, yeah, and it's just this playfulness, and and all the characters are actually alive and yeah. in the studio and playing and interacting, which is what was groundbreaking. They were yeah. interacting so um, fluidly with the live action, and I thought, you know, the story of Walt, uh, you know, playing and interacting with these mice adds that whimsy and magic yeah to you know to the story of the creation of mickey so and uh so i thought it was it was a nice little touch i think to the story of mickey that they ultimately dropped because i think the story of walt creating mickey in the face of adversity and taking charge of of his own destiny is a much more powerful Oh, message! It absolutely is. I mean, it's there. There's a life lesson 
to be told in that that you know don't don't give up you know mm-hmm. the sometimes the next great idea can be just around the corner and if you overcome all the odds it could lead to everything that's still here to this day so it definitely is the more more empowering of the messages and, and a mm-hmm. message that you know people still uh people who follow walt disney kids growing up learning about walt disney know to this day because it really does teach a valuable lesson that even when you have failures you can overcome them mm-hmm. and that was walt's life yeah. Walt always had good, hard failures in his life. With the, you know, as we talked about, the failure of Laughograms, you know, and then, but and then it always spurned him on yeah. to even greater things. You know, the loss of Oswald spurned him on to Mickey. You know, the failure of Laughograms in Kansas City spurned him on to go to California and go into partnership with Roy, which is probably one of the most dynamic business partnerships in the history of. American business, yeah, and uh, no, and just... then World War Two spurned on you know a new round of uh, another renaissance of Disney films, and and spurned the live act and, and create and got uh, created the reason for the live action films. Yeah, some of his greatest ones. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it, you know? it just it fits the narrative of Walt's life perfectly, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and. You know, Walt's Walt's life is a story now, and I'm sure he recognized that his story was going to be told at some point in time as he was going through it all. And, you know, it's very fitting that they could turn it, it just keep that narrative going throughout. So, exactly. Uh, pretty brilliant. So, hopefully, young people, especially listening to this, and as you learn the story of Walt, you always learn that, you know, things don't always go your way. You know, whatever you, whatever the path is to your goal, it's always a winding path. It's never a straight path. And like Walt, if you hit an obstacle, you find another way. You find another road. Or you might find that your path leads to something even better. Exactly. But don't, but don't get discouraged. Yeah, you no, know? it's, uh, you know, there is, it, there's always something else out mm-hmm. there. And sometimes you just have to have a little bit of failure or uh, it just a change to see that mm-hmm. well maybe something this could be better and mm-hmm. you know that's that's what Walt was and that's that's just reality mm-hmm. so, absolutely I think that's one of the learn. greatest so yes <laughs> oh yeah it's not easy but I think it's one of the greatest things we can learn about take away from Walt yeah is that he always found another way another route another goal that that went on to greater things Exactly. You know, so. Well, now, next week, you know, Craig and I will be at the D23 Expo uh, next door to Disneyland at the Anaheim Convention Center. And, of course, since we'll be at Disneyland, Craig and I will have another installment of our series, Disneyland. The Disney that never was, but it's going to focus on Disneyland. And we're going to talk about Discovery Bay, an unbuilt land for Disneyland that was designed by Tony Baxter. Yeah, that's a very exciting one. So if you've mm-hmm. never if you've never heard of Discovery Bay before, you're you're in for a real treat on this one. So mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough to be in uh, uh, hear a panel at one point where Tony Baxter was talking about Discovery Bay, and it's just extremely fascinating. Mm-hmm. So like like all the stories of things that were never built are. Yes, and. 
you know, and you'll wish it had been built. <laughs> I yeah. think when you when you finish hearing what it was going to be. Yeah, but see, I'm in that camp of everything that doesn't get built that I hear about. I wish it was Thunder yeah. Mesa, <laughs> yes, Discovery Bay, just mm-hmm. all of it. Guardians so now, of the Galaxy at Epcot, not so much, but everything yeah. else. <laughs> well, who knows? That still might get built. <laughs> uh, don't remind me. Now, Craig, where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged uh, network of shows until next time? Of course, you can find me every Tuesday on the Disney World Edition podcast. Um, Wednesdays, sometimes on Best and Worst. Thursdays on, uh, on the Universal Edition. Fridays now that we're doing this on connecting with walt um until the off season and then fridays also does pop uh every other day in between usually some vlogs here and there um i'm everywhere so you have to look very hard to not find me um <laughs> or or you just see my face pop up and you you choose to just ignore it immediately which mm-hmm. that's it if that's your boat then uh you know Go ahead and keep sailing on it. Um, that saying makes no sense. I don't know why it just came out of my mouth. But then, of course, you can always find me on social media, too. Uh, preferably on Twitter. You can follow me at Teleclaster. That's that's where I will be most active at. Excellent. And be sure that if you are at the D23 Expo or at Disneyland and you see us next week, that you come up and say hello. Yeah, absolutely. So, and um, of course, follow along with all of our coverage. We are going to, uh, we are trying to step up our game, even from the last expo, which was uh, just just a whirlwind, and some of the best content we've uh, we've put out um, in such a short amount of time. So, we're going to try to one up it again this time around, and it, it's going to be very exciting. So, if you're at the expo, make sure to to come say hi and if you're at home um you know i hope you enjoy all of the content that we're putting out and on top of that too uh we will um we'll be having uh, at least one contest going on where people who aren't at the expo have a chance to to win a pretty cool prize so make Ooh. sure you are following everything we're doing that weekend that's very cool that's yeah. very nice that even our followers who can't be there will be able to win exactly yeah That's i can't neat. give away details well probably by the time this is out the details will be out yeah <laughs> but as of recording this i can't give away the details <laughs> well and besides at the d23 expo you can find me every sunday night on the dis unplugged podcast disneyland edition with my good friends tom bell nancy johnson mary joe mulata willie and tony spatel where we have lots of fun talking about waltz park that started it all and all southern california theme parks and i also talk about the walt disney family museum and even more disney history listen to us live on mixler at 7 p.m pacific time disneyland time you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disneyplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our shows and leave some positive reviews and ratings. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. 
So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. 